Welcome to the Modern Meinhof Podcast. I am your host, Richard Huffman, expert in all things Bader Meinhof. We talk about the Bader Meinhof gang, left-wing urban German terrorism of the 1970s, student radicalism, other related ephemera. Um, I, I call it the only podcast that is devoted to, yet unaffiliated with, the Bader Meinhof gang. Um, today we have a really interesting interview with an uh, artist based in uh, Melbourne, Australia named David Chesworth, who has an upcoming performance piece called Richter Meinhof Opera after a libretto by Tony McGregor. And it's going to be um, it's going to be at the uh, at the uh, Melbourne International Arts Festival coming up in mid-October 2010. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later. Before I get to that, I want to deal with some housekeeping. Number one is, as always, if you enjoy these podcasts, which are totally free and and done as my gift to you, consider visiting iTunes and uh, and rating it or writing some nice comments about it if you like it. If not, don't worry about it. But if you do, I, I always appreciate that. Um, two, um, I'm about to... I'm going to put out over the next couple of weeks, I'm going to do a couple special short podcasts about the four great mysteries associated with the Bader-Meinhof group. Um, quickly, one is whatever happened to Ingeborg Bars, who was a young member of the group in the mid-70s. She was briefly with the group and she participated in a bank robbery. And And uh, one day she called up her mother and said, you know, I don't want to be part of this anymore. I'm coming home. And she never turned up. And uh, it's been reported variously that she was murdered by Andreas Bader because he was afraid of that she might, you know, give secrets up about the group. And this is probably a probably a, a safe assumption on his part. But nobody ever really found a body. There was a body found in 73, but they weren't sure if it was her. And we're not so totally sure what happened to her. The other mystery is what happened to Angela Luther, who was one of the people that left car bombs in uh the, the, the fifth corps headquarters in Heidelberg, Germany in May of 72 that killed, um, three us GIs. And, um, she disappeared. Then she reappeared, um, taking part in the June 2nd movements, um, 1975 kidnapping of Berlin mayoral candidate, Peter Lorenz. And then she disappeared again and nobody has heard anything of her in the past 20 or 35, 30 years. And uh, I talked with Bami Bauman, who was a former member of the June 2nd movement and other groups, and he said that he had heard, and he's fairly certain that she escaped to Australia. But who knows? Who knows where she is and who knows what's going on? Um, of course, the, the, the other, other mysteries is what happened to the tapes that the federal government recorded in secretly in Stammheim prison because they bugged the prisoner cells, they bugged the uh, interrogation rooms, and they claimed that they only turned on these tapes once and recorded some brief conversation one day, which is, of course, ridiculous on its face. And uh, But nobody's ever known what was on these other tapes, if they knew about pending actions. Um, nobody's sure whatsoever. So consequently... Um, Consequently, there uh, I, I want to explore that and figure out what exactly happened to these tapes. Not that I'm going to get to the bottom of it. And then a, finally, the greatest mystery of all is what happened on Death Night in uh, in uh, 
October 18th, 1977, when Andres Bader, Guder Nenslin, Jean-Carl Raspa were all found dead um, by supposedly self-inflicted gunshot wounds, um, hangings, and um, it's such a it was such a shock and it seemed so crazy to say, wow, that this was the most secure prison block in the world yet. Somehow they'd managed to smuggle in not one, but two guns. It's a great, great mystery to, to figure out what exactly happened those nights. So I'm going to explore that as well. But today we're talking with David Chesworth who has uh, put together what sounds like a very arresting and evocative um, piece um, exploring Ulrike Meinhof and this cycle of paintings by um, prominent East German artist Gerhard Richter, um, which explored the Bader Meinhof phenomenon. He he sort of places Meinhof and Richter in a room together, uh, metaphorically. And this piece explores how we view history, how we represent history um, and the near past. And it sounds fantastic. Um, if you live in Australia, Definitely encourage you, if you're anywhere near Melbourne, to visit this exhibit. And if you do happen to see it, send me a report. Let me know what you think of it. I wish I could visit. I've always wanted to visit Melbourne. It is the home of, well, the greatest rock band in the history of of music, ACDC. I always wanted to visit uh, ACDC Lane and some of the other things, but I won't be able to make it this trip. So I'm going to leave it up to you, my listeners, to report back to me. So without further ado, here is my interview with David Chesworth. Again, if you have any questions, comments, or thoughts, email me at richard at richardhuffman.com. Uh, okay, we are speaking with David Chesworth, who is mounting a piece based on, um, well, a piece of artwork that I feature pretty prominently on my website. Um, can you tell me a little bit about your project, what's going on, and what it's based on? Yeah, the piece is based on um, Gerhard Richter's painting of the uh, series of paintings of the Bader-Meinhof group called October 18, 1977. Uh, he painted these works in uh, the mid-80s and um, using um, police photographs mainly of the um, members of the, the, the first stage of the, the group, um, based around their suicide in uh, Spanheim prison and also some um, po uh, photographs of um, their arrest and uh, during their incarceration in jail. Um, the paintings caused uh, a sensation when they were uh, um, kind of revealed in 1988-89. Um, I guess because the, the subject matter um, had been put to one side by, uh, I guess, Germany and um, internationally, in a way. And um, so, so the work kind of uh, touched a raw nerve and um, opened up a whole lot of questions about um, how we um, deal with history, I suppose. And uh, the work that I, I'm doing uh, places Gerhard Richter in, in the room with uh, Ulrike Meinhof, one of the, um, well, one of the more famous... Uh, of the of the terrorists, and I suppose I, I was interested um, in in Richter's paintings uh, because I guess that they try and deal with the um, I guess the paintings are about how you represent 
history or how um, his response to something that happened that was quite um, uh, pointed and specific. And uh, yet he did a series of paintings which seemed to not resolve those um, uh, conflicts and, in a sense, pass them on to the public, the audience, to deal with. And the paintings caused a sensation, I suppose, because they... Um, by painting over the photographs, which is his uh, technique, uh, he kind of blurs the images and takes, makes, turns the images from something that are quite factual as photographs into something which has been interpreted and somehow re recedes back into uh, the image recedes back into the uh, the painting into the into the uh, uh, canvas. And there's a distancing, and you therefore look at the paintings and the images of these um, notorious figures quite differently. So I was interested in how something so real and um, pointed back in the time, uh, like in you know the mid '70s, when the Bader Meinhof gang were um, creating. Sort of havoc. I mean, just a small group of people. They were terrorists, and they were creating so much um, havoc in uh, West Germany. How um, something that was driven so much by uh, ideology, by uh, in Meinhof's case, she 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 put down the pen uh, as she was a as we know she was a, a journalist and writer, and took up the gun and. Um, took up the gun in order to, to carry out her, or, or, or in order to bring about change, which seems like she uh, was having um, trouble doing simply with the pen. And someone who was driven to such a degree, uh, who's ideologically driven to such a degree to, um, uh, to leap over to uh, becoming a terrorist um, is interesting subject matter. Yet it's, it's painted by Gerhard Richter, who uh, professes to have no ideology. Uh, he, he gives many interviews, uh, perhaps some of them candid in some respects, but he, um, he's often stated he doesn't believe in ideology of any kind. He doesn't believe in um, uh, causes and um, certainly kind of um, uh, becoming involved in, in causes or issues. And um, I guess I wanted to contrast those two sort of political approaches. The, 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 the ideologue who, um, from the sort of mid-70s uh, with um, somebody who didn't, doesn't want to commit and wants to kind of pass judgment on to, to others. Now, do you, do you believe Richter when he says he doesn't have any opinion on this, or is that just like a stance he's taking to... I guess further his own mystique. <laughs> yeah, I think it's very much a, a stance. Um, he, um, because in a way he's, uh, um, I guess, setting things up for um, for the audience to read and and doing doing so in a very sort of clever way because the the works are so open ended. I was interested in how. That contrasts with a lot of political thinking today, where so many um, governments are um, the result of hung parliaments in, in the Western world. Hmm. As 
and there's so much political apathy around and and um a lot more um i guess you know the me too generation or, or the generation of self betterment um um that we're um we seem to be uh, surrounded by at the moment as opposed to a time when people had you know quite um uh, you know, had had political agendas and commitments that they they really uh, felt that they wanted to carry through, and it's such a contrast, I suppose, to um, uh, for audiences today. Well, of course, the members of the Bartomeinhof group would say, well, they were the product of a time similar to the current time, as you describe it, with the hung parliaments, because in the mid '60s, which was the era that gave rise to the Bottermeyer group in the 70s that was the time in Germany of the grand coalition where they had to they couldn't form a government so they had to bring the two main political parties and create this super government and it was the lesson that um taught it taught all these members these group these these young students that were all excited about their left left party the SPD and suddenly they realized, to their thinking, the SPD was no different than the Conservative Party because they joined with them. And um, so it was, there was a time earlier on for this group that was similar to what you're describing now, which were these hung parliaments. There's a lot of tension, but the only thing any time anybody gets anything done is if they get together, there's no overall agenda by one group coming through, whether it's the left or right. And I think that's what angered these people in the early 60s, helps kickstart their desire to see change through a different means, I guess. I suppose at the time, the the whole kind of youth culture um, was, um, you know, okay, there was May 58, uh, but also there was a popular cultural push for uh, change and revolution on, on a very kind of populist level. But the two combining together had an incredible strength. And... Um, I guess when we see, um, you know, especially Bader portrayed in, in um, I mean, the, the Bader-Meinhof complex, the, the movie, for example, just the bravado and the kind of embracing of um, um, some of, uh, I, I guess, stances that we would see as um, almost cliched by uh, uh, today's standards, but they really... There was this kind of naivety, wasn't there, that they thought they could bring about um, change, coupled with, you know, a, a real desire uh, uh, to, to try and attempt to do that, which is um, such kind of different uh, mindset that, uh, than what we have today. That's true. Even though what they accomplished was, I, you could argue, nothing. In fact, worse than nothing. It's it's not. It's it's easy to put yourself in the mindset of how positive they felt, you know, how they they didn't really have what we now in later generations um, just we just know, oh, you can't accomplish anything. They didn't have that mindset. They didn't have anything stopping them from thinking, hey, if we just fight this hard enough in our own way, we're going to be successful. Nowadays, you have the um, legacy of the failure of all these groups. So if you were to start something you'd recognize going in, it's probably a lost cause. They, I don't think they had that lost cause philosophy, at least not early on, which in a sense is kind of exciting. You can understand that as a young person, how exciting it is, the, the thought you could change the world with your your anger and your passion. Uh, uh, that's true, and you know, like a lot of the the, the rhetoric of the time and the the um, 
uh, post, you know, what the, the kind of catch cries of, uh, you know, wanting change and revolution. You know, the phrase of the thing was quite, um, you know, cliched and hackneyed by today's kind of um, position, but these were heartfelt, you know, real sentiments that, uh, um, you know, meant something to these people. And uh, just trying to reclaim that and and, sh and try and portray such a thing, um, you know, some 30 or 40 years later is, is quite an interesting problem or exercise. And I guess this work, uh, in a sense, looks at the different ways that history can be represented um, and different ways of how we remember that past um, because we, we have two kinds of uh, memory I suppose at our disposal we, we have you know the lived memory of people who were there and involved uh, while those people have written books and are kind of getting old they still have that kind of connection and then we have a kind of a cultural memory which I guess you know, Richter is involved with, and, and in my project to some degree, and people have written books and plays and, and uh, about the, the subject matter. And so the, so the Bader-Meinhof get remembered in kind of more official ways or more sort of cultural ways, in, in, in my case through, I guess, an artwork, and in Richter's case through, through artworks. And it becomes... I'm kind of fascinated with how something that was so real um, and lived at one particular time is referenced later and how we attempt, you know, how we can or cannot get back to that original context. And in this work, by the, um, uh, which is called Richter Meinhof Opera, um, I guess the word opera is used. Um, Kind of ironically, but irony doesn't last very long um, in uh, in titles. People see that as a literal use of the word, so it is, it is an opera. Um, the word it, it kind of shows how it is hard to restage ideas, how it, um, um, and how you kind of try and reiterate ideas. To get to the crux of certain things, people, you know, that we write. We um, write poetry, we paint pictures and paintings, in Richter's case, we write songs. And these things use emotional um, devices and, and various things to, to, get to, to try and attempt to get to the crux of certain aspects of the matter. But it's either um, an emotional um, pathway in, um, and if that's the case, there's a lot of um, subject matter that you will never kind of reach or get to. And so there's a kind of a, a distortion as we retell stories, distortions occur and certain distortions people catch on to. I mean, you know, Meinhof has become multiple, uh, there's multiple versions of who uh, she has become and what she means to, to various people. And I guess that's where this work um, that, that, that's what this work is investigating, uh, partly through Richter's paintings and, and how the images of the Bader-Meinhof um, become changed when you try and um, capture them and, um, and interpret them. And um, 
in my piece, there are two songs, and um, the songs I've set some of Richter's um, interviewing uh, interviews uh, to song, and I've also referenced Meinhof um, singing a song from Brecht's The Measures Taken, hmm. um, which is a work that uh, Stefan Aust refers to in his um, uh, book uh, called Bader Meinhof. And the fact that Meinhof referred to um, Brecht's The Measures Taken is kind of interesting because um, the particular song was uh, dealt with how far one must go to bring about change, how low are we prepared to stoop in order to um, you know, bring about change. I guess it's that kind of, you know, the greater good kind of argument. And um, so I kind of, the work's based on on, on my re- readings of the times and then, and then what I remember uh, and what appeals to me and um, certain things have remained in my memory um, by researching um, the uh, the Baden-Meinhof um, era, and so I have kind of included these memories and ideas that I've kind of accumulated, and really the work has to be seen through a kind of um, my eyes as the um, uh, as the author of the work, and this is you know simply one of many possible representations of the time. And I suppose the work, as I say, is about acknowledging that um, it, it's about the the impossibility of recapturing and retelling as much as one might want to try to get to the um, the essence of the uh, the matter. Well, you know what I found interesting when I was thinking about your work and coming up, I, I it, it struck me, it reminded me of um, the first time I heard about uh, Richter's exhibit about 10 years ago. And when I was looking at the paintings and I was, I was researching and reading about it, I realized, boy, these paintings, when they came out, had uh, the typical German viewer would have had a completely and utterly different reaction than, say, the American viewer who wanders into MoMA in 2001, because most Americans, as I've come to find out with my site, um, have no, have never heard, nor should they have necessarily, have never heard of the Bader-Meinhof group, never heard of Ulrike Meinhof or Andreas Bader or Gudrun Enslin. They don't know who these people are. They don't know anything about it. It's utterly without any context with them. Whereas the typical German, I guess, in the mid-80s or late 80s when they came out, knew tremendous um, – they, 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 they lived through it. It was Germany's 9-11. They, they, were, they would recognize these images. They would recognize the blurring that, that Richter did versus an American um, later on that may not have to do that. And I thought it was interesting that um, – that, um, Robert uh, um, uh, Storr had to provide that context by by writing a book, and I was thinking about your work as well. In that, in that, to a, to a certain sense, this is a work um, 
where you have to provide like you must I, I'm wondering if you're feeling like you have to provide a, another layer of context for people that don't even understand the original context that that Richter is professing to be so ambivalent about it seems to me it must be really challenging to be doing a work that's so primal yet so few people seem to know about that maybe more so now because of the movie but it just seems um it would seem to be the biggest challenge in art to try and try to try and uh talk about something that's so critically important to such a group of people yet your audience may not actually be fully aware of anything they're looking at I think that's entirely true um it, uh We've set up a, a website uh, that, that provides the background material uh, behind the piece, um, which is victor-meinhof-opera.com, uh, for that very reason, because you know people uh, under the age of uh, 40 you know, you haven't really heror of the Bader Meinhof group, or they might have heard of Ulrike Meinhof, but um, then there's the Richter paintings. Um, you know, many people wouldn't have, wouldn't have ever come across those, and I hadn't come across them until uh, they were pointed out to me, um, you know, reasonably recently. So that's an issue, and this work is actually being staged in the in the Melbourne Festival as part of the Visual Arts Program. So it's actually um, intended for, I guess, visual arts audiences who. Um, Many do know about the uh, the Richter paintings, and they'll be uh, coming on that uh, coming on to see it. Hopefully, on on that basis, the original idea for the work was to make it a larger opera that dealt with terrorism as a subject matter, uh, both looking at the Bader Meinhof and contemporary notions of terrorism and contrasting the two. And it became such a difficult project because we were having to, you know. Explain who the Bader Meinhof was to a, a more general public, and then who each of the characters might be, and what their positions, what the German um, uh, society was like at the time. And like you say, it, it, it's such an incredibly complicated. Um, um, well, there are so many kind of layers and stories, and 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 to try and tell that succinctly in a in a, a stage work is 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 asking too much, I suppose. I guess this work is more like an installation, uh, more like a painting uh, that you might read. And there's only seven scenes, and they're quite specific scenes. There's there's texts and writings and and sayings that Meinhof. Um, uh, wrote. Um, there's several, um, well, the seven scenes, and one of them includes um, the identity parade that Meinhof, this farcical identity parade that Meinhof took part in when she was in jail, where six other people were dressed up to look like her and told to act like her and resist. And she was paraded out along with these. Um, doppelgangers, um, each saying that they were the real Meinhof and, you know, the other, pay no attention to the others. And so that particular scene really is just, it, 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 I guess my, my scenes deal on very, um, set very simple notions when you break it down. And that scene is really just about who is Meinhof, who is the real Meinhof. There's another scene where people um, hear 
a record, um, and it's Eric Clapton singing um, a song from um, There's One in Every Crowd. Yeah. And um, the song's called Life is What You Make It. And that was the record that was on the record player that was painted by um, Gerhard Richter in the, the series. Yeah, when I, when, I, when I saw that picture, I, I, my heart skipped a beat because my uncle, uh, who, who lives now with my dad, they, he was the head of the, he was the head of the vice president of marketing for that record company, RSO Records, Robert Stigwood Records. Right. And I'd like, oh my God, that's the RSO cow. I remember that record. It was this weird kind of personal connection i immediately sought out the record i wasn't actually i wasn't aware of the record but it it drew me to it just because i i it 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 made this connection of oh wow he's listening to music i listened to it was a kind of a weird personal connection it was almost the only personal connection i could find in all of those paintings but it was at least for me very personal and very abrupt when i saw that and the fact that that was a they were listening to those kinds of records and that was left on the record player and how um, you know appropriate it is as kind of um, as uh, and how, how that material may have um, played some part in creating you know the mindset behind uh, you know, of the times is kind of quite fascinating and to hear that in a in a contemporary context. Um, alongside the the other two sung songs, I just thought it was an interesting juxtaposition. Um, but again, a very simple, um, a, a very simple theme. So m- most of my scenes, most of the scenes in the work are, are, are pictures, almost like photographs in a way. They're, they're just moments, mm. and hopefully people will see something and feel something in each of those moments uh, when they see the work. You know, it's it's interesting. Then, you you brought up the um, Meinhof um, moment. I don't know. Did you guys have in, in Australia a TV show of the uh, like a version of the American show to tell the truth where you'd have like three people sitting on a stage trying to lie and one was telling. Oh yeah. I, I know the American version. Yeah. And, oh, on YouTube when he started describing when, when Aus described that scene, it seemed straight from to tell the truth where she starts saying, I'm Ulrika Meinhof. So they would scream, I'm Ulrika Meinhof. And, and I uh, interviewed um, a gentleman who was a witness to one of the bombings, the Frankfurt bombing in May, uh, early May of 72. And he was saying that he was, um, he had to go identify Andreas Bader later and after they captured him and it was the exact same thing. He didn't he hadn't realized they had done this with Meinhof as well. It was pretty clear the entire group they had decided jointly we're gonna screw up these these um lineups by saying that. Um and uh and and when he did it, apparently when he first when he saw Bader do it uh, the other people in the lineup didn't know they were supposed to follow along, so it ruined the lineup. And after that, I think that's when they spread the word to the police and all the other people that were part of these these doppelgangers say, listen, you've got to copy what she has to say, otherwise it's going to screw it up. So I think because she was captured maybe later or her lineup was later than Botter, the police had gotten wise to it. But honestly, the first time I read that, I laughed out loud. It was so audacious and uh kind of i've never heard of somebody screw up a lineup before like that it's one of my 
it's one of the scenes that that's most vivid to me in the whole episode of them capturing Meinhof because it just speaks volumes to to um I guess how clever they were and how smart they were. And then to to represent that those kinds of you know stuff up in in a, in, a, in this kind of work and you read something else into it again of course because you know our Meinhof has become multi, a multiple figure um and so it just seems interestingly ironic that uh, they had this kind of staging um, in jail. Yeah, I I, I read an interview with, I mean, I read, I I interviewed a woman who wrote a book about Meinhof last year, and she pointed out very clearly that Meinhof has almost become this, what she, what, what people have represented her of is almost starting to bear very little relation to her actuality. She becomes this, and she point. She was talking specifically about Meinhof as like a feminist icon, and as the um, the woman that I interviewed, um, who's a professor at um, in Scotland, she was pointing out that Meinhof was not a feminist really at all, and in fact, a lot of what was espoused by feminism, she this was not on Meinhof's agenda at all. But be, but she's become this icon for motherhood, for female power, for um, a whole host of things that almost don't actually, if you really go back to the time, don't bear a relationship to her at the time. They more bear a relationship to our current, uh, what we currently want to feel about her, whether it relates to her at all or not. No, I think as a figure, she does fit into a lot of our agendas as to who we want her to be for us. Uh, because she was, you know, such a, a an iconoclast, and she, you know, you know, she, she, what she did was just um, um, so over the top, you know. It was, it, there, there is an interview on uh, YouTube with her though, where she does talk about being sort of hamstrung by having to the dual responsibilities of of uh, being a a writer, and uh, in fact. She, the interview might she might have already become a, uh, gone underground. I'm not sure. It's hard to tell. But she oh, talks no, about that's, the problem. That's actually, it's, I put that interview up. It was oh, right. uh, it was filmed actually literally maybe a month or two months before she went underground. She was in her Berlin apartment. She, yeah. she seems visibly depressed in, in that yeah. kind of unique German way yeah. of of intellectualizing her depression and and her relationship with her children and stuff. It's really fascinating. Honestly, I learned more about Meinhof by just watching her body language in that interview than I think anything else I ever saw. Yes, it's amazing. Um, it's, it's an amazing interview. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, so yes, Meinhof has become. I, I think. Since also since the paintings of Richter, um, obviously he, he turned them in, her image. You know, she became even more of an icon um, after the, the the two kinds of images he paints, both the uh, as journalists and then the um, the three uh, dead pictures. Which are just uniquely gruesome. I had, I've honestly, at the time, I'd never seen the original images, and it's her laying on the ground. They've, they've 
obviously the police have laid her on the ground and you can see where she hung herself because whatever she used to kind of garret her neck sort of cut into it and it's oh oh, maybe that was it yeah and it just there it's three in a row i guess succeedingly larger and there it's gruesome 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 images so let me ask you about um terrorism as a subject matter for art because i've i've been fascinated by this because it this particular installation of richter caused a lot of controversy um often it's challenging to present any work as a subject matter when when uh Gudrun Enslin's son Felix Enslin mounted an exhibition in Germany it was hugely hugely um uh controversial and i've yeah. often wondered in a sense like why people don't question Guernica uh by Picasso they don't question yeah. Goya's work about war why is terrorism suddenly off limits it's almost as if there's an assumption that you're making a positive value judgment towards terrorism by rather than just kind of putting up the lens of society to it. I, I, I don't know if this is something you encountered or what your thoughts are on that. Well, I'm not encountering it in this work, but I suppose Richter was, in Richter's case, he was, it was probably still very um, soon after it was the event and uh, a lot of the issues that had been unresolved. Um, so I guess, um, terrorism, um, was, well, there was a lot of the German public supported the Bademeyerhof, as we know, but yeah. there was, um, obviously, you know, there's, um, a lot of people who were anti-terrorism and to, um, I don't know, I think I would find, uh, you know, it's unsurprising that uh, it would, uh, you know, be, be con- controversial. There's an aspect of, I mean, what, what interests me is, is really, there's always been this, it's been difficult, it's difficult to include, you know, violence with art, or to try, more so, I guess, to include politics and art, they, they, they kind of never really go together well. But there's a kind of a, a, with violence and terrorism, there's a shared thing with art, which is the the act of looking, you know, voyeurism aspect. And people are always interested to peer into a subject matter which they, you know, would otherwise have nothing to do with. And there's and the way the images are set up with um, October 18, 1977, those paintings, because they're black and white and grainy, there's a there's a distance, and I think there's a desire to have a look at them rather like someone's compared the images to the images of the Holocaust, of course, mm. uh, where we saw a lot of dead bodies, grainy black and white photographs, and the sense of looking at the Bader-Meinhof images is, is rather like the same experience. That kind of interests me. Yeah, um, when, when you saw them the first time when you learned about this, what what was it? So you had never heard of this thing. What what was the process? So you saw them and then and thought, boy, I'm I need to learn more about this Bader-Meinhof group. How did that? How did that? Um, how was that involved? How did that happen? You, well, it was brought to my attention by my um, the, the original um, librettist I worked with, Tony McGregor, who um, 
images that he showed them to me. And it's funny, I, I kind of looked at them and I, I had no um, initial reaction. It was kind of much slower for me to uh, my connection with the images and my response to the images. So um, it, it's more of a, a, a gradual attempt to try and understand what they might be attempt, you know, a, a attempting to say. Um, I wasn't, um, there was some kind of beauty to, to them, you know, or, or aesthetic you know, aspect to it, but I, um, I didn't have any immediate connection. In, in, in a sense, I needed the, the background, I needed to find out more about why they were painted, and then they become much, became much more interesting. Um, there's also the idea that, you know, these um, the images can, in a way, be a kind of way of trying to deal with um, other, you know, like like Germany had never really um, come to terms with uh, the Holocaust, and Richter, it's been said, tried to paint but never did, tried, tried to paint the Holocaust or, um, you know, um, some pictures associated with them. Hmm. And in a way, this could be a, kind of a, an attempt, a, remo a removal but, but in a, from the uh, Holocaust, but an attempt to somehow come to terms with gaps in German history that have never really been kind of dealt with hmm. uh, overtly. So I guess I, I kind of liked the... the what, the um, the resonances around I responded to the resonances around the images rather than um, the directness of them. It's amazing how direct the, the images are. I mean, the one you referred to, you know, Meinhof, um, was reprinted in uh, Stern magazine, wasn't it? Like yep. as a kind of a, a, a double page. Yeah. Um, so those images that. Now we, you know, you'd never see them um, being reproduced that way in the press. It would just be unheard of. But uh, it seemed that that happened quite a bit uh, as late as the 70s. You know, well, they were the, they were in the German press was um, rabid for information about this, and Stern was in this losing battle with their Spiegel about you know trying to get more and more Meinhof info, and they would present the death images pretty readily and yeah you're right i can't imagine seeing nowadays a lot of that Im that that imagery but to a typical german i'm sure a lot of these images seemed old hat certainly the um the kind of uh the portrait of meinhof as a young girl which turns out it wasn't it was when she was a journalist and older but but this this was real common this was this was this image was seen all over the place. So, like, like maybe an American viewer that that sees it now, she would they they would look at that image as, you know, I don't know, means nothing to me. But if you were German, that would have evoked a lot of memories of the last ten years, a lot of your own ambivalent memories about terrorism, how it's overtaken Europe um, and Germany. But to somebody else, it's just just an image. It's it's such a weird piece of art because or weird series of art because it is uh, so totally about context, 
and and you can arrive at that without any of that context. You know, you can look at the Mona Lisa and have zero context and fully appreciate it. And I'm not so sure you can fully you can you can appreciate the aesthetic appeals, but I'm not so sure you can really delve into these paintings without really having a background, which I find amazing that you'd have to do that for work, but I guess you have to. That's what Robert Storr told me, why he printed that book, because he, you had to have that background, I guess. Yeah, you do. Then again, um, we um, showed some people the paintings of Meinhof, uh, the dead paintings, and um, got people's responses and you know got them to write down um, what, what they saw in the paintings. And we there were very incredibly rich responses because mm. the, you know, the images are startling. I mean, I think not unlike the Mona Lisa in some respects because there's a lot of kind of withholding um, of information. Yet, yet they're very evocative images. You know, there's so much being suggested. I mean, you see Meinhof lying prone, but you know, she could be sleeping. You know, what's the cause of the the slit in her throat, you know, the mark on her throat, what does this mean? And um, how did she get there? Like, and how, why did this picture get taken? It, you know, they're very unusual images. Um, but, and so I think they do invite an emotional and um, aesthetic and, and, you know, a response, uh, which is, you know, a very personal response from the viewer. Yeah. But then after that, yes, there's so much context, uh, and it just gets richer and richer when when you actually uh, are more and more interesting when when you find out who that person is and yeah. uh, how, how she came to be there. And I uh, used to I used to think of um, Richter because I would hear him say, "Oh, it's not politics. I'm I'm, I'm you know I'm not presenting any stand on this issue." But I'm thinking, well, from another perspective, if you were to do the Bader Meinhof subject. For instance, the movie producers, they're doing their own take on this Bottermeyer phenomenon. Well, they showed a lot of, quote, innocent people being killed, a lot of uh, a policemen being shot. Um, you don't see any of that in, in Richter's paintings. You don't see any of the violence they created. You only see the violence that was uh, brought on them. And to me, that's a very, very specific choice on his part. Which 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 tells me, of course, he's being an artist, claiming this kind of neutrality that clearly clearly doesn't exist in a sense. So I don't know. That's why I, I I've been looking at those paintings for ten years, and I never stopped being fascinated by them. And a lot of it is the backstory behind the paintings that that keeps drawing me to them. Absolutely, it's the backstory, and uh, you're very right. I mean, the whole yeah, leaving out the the uh, the victims was you know. Uh, deliberate and, and, and quite con controversial. Um, the other thing I've done in the work is tried. Uh, what I found I was dealing with very much was her voice and her the, the sort of muting and the removal of her voice that that took place from her abandonment of of, of writing the articles uh, concrete and um, turning. To you know, the gun speaking louder than uh, than words, and the ongoing removal of her voice when she was kept in solitary confinement um, at Ossendorf Jail. Yep. Um, 
I mean, there's a telling chapter in the Alps book where she screams out to Astrid Kroll, who's taking a bath. Uh, you probably know that, that yep. scene. And um, <clears throat> in a sense, I, I state that's one of my scenes because her voice is heard for you know in my in my work for the first time when she kind of calls out Astrid, and it's like this proto this pre-aria. It's this it's this it's this kind of body kind of exclaiming. Hmm. Um, trying to kind of, um, well, she's kind of using her voice again, but but in this kind of, you know, much different way than, than the articulate writer. The the act of, and I kind of suggest that, that the um, the final removal of her voice uh, was done by Richter, by, you know, painting the, what is essentially a death mask of hmm. her and others in, in, her, in his series, and including the kind of, the mark on her neck, which is um, like like the you know the voice has been kind of taken taken away um, completely by Victor. Um, I mean that's one way of looking at it. And um, what I do in this in, in this work is, I guess, suggest that her voice has been removed, and also try and reintroduce it, though it never reconnects totally with who she was. It can only be you know what she has uttered, being uttered by others. So um, the separation of her and her voice, you know, um, the body and the voice, is is an interesting um, uh, aspect for me. Hmm. So let's talk about how people can see this and learn more about it. You have a website devoted to it. There's a website that talks about the work um, called Richter Dash. What it's www.richter-meinhof-opera.com, okay. and uh, that talks about a lot of the background behind the paintings and uh, and and behind the work. And where can when are people able to see this work and whereabouts? Um, it's being staged, uh, premiered at the um, Melbourne Arts Festival, which is in October this year. Okay. Uh, on October the 14th, 15th, and 16th, um, there are performances in the evening. There are two performances a, uh, a night. Um, hopefully, after the initial uh, performance, the work will uh, tour, and there's interest both from uh, Robert Store and uh, from um, I know in the UK there's interest as well. So, um, if the work um, survives the opening and is uh, well received, which I hope it will be, hmm. um, hopefully the work will um, will tour in, uh, internationally. Well, that would be, I wish you the best of luck of that. We'll have a, um, links on my site. I'll put up a page about it and give people the information if you want to send me, uh, or actually I'll find it out on your website, the location or anything, and I'll put it up there. I know we have lots of Aussie uh, listeners and lots of Aussie visitors to my site, so um, hopefully some will come. I'm always fascinated by where people come to my site. It, I, when I first put it up, I thought, oh, I guess you know nobody in America cares about this, and I realized, well, that's true because pretty much 80% of my visitors are outside of the U.S. and a big right. portion yeah, yeah. come from from uh, Australia. So we'll keep our fingers crossed for you. So thank you so much for spending some time talking with me. And I hope to get the chance myself someday to see uh, this artwork. It sounds extremely interesting and fascinating and exactly up my alley.
Well, thanks very much, Richard. It's been uh, great to talk to you, and um, hopefully we can bring it to a, a place near you. Bottom line, huh? Bottom line.